At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today a real fantastic clinical expert on many, many things, but certainly on liver transplant anesthesia. And that is why she's here today. Dr. Nicole Riscala is really just considered one of the experts in our institution and honestly, probably in the country on liver transplant anesthesia. She gives and provides incredible care and teaches our residents how to do this. And I've been trying for quite a long time to get her to come on the show to talk about it. Now, we did do a, an episode on liver transplant anesthesia several years ago, and so this will be a really great update and give some further information um, on what we did the last time around. So, um, Nicole, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, and I really appreciate the invite. So just remember, everyone, if you need CME, we now offer it through CMEify. You can go to the show notes at agrac.com, click on the link, and get your CME that way. All right. So, Nicole, why don't you start by just tell the audience a little bit about yourself. How did you get where you are and what does your practice look like? Sure, sure. So um, I currently am one of the liver anesthesiologists at Johns Hopkins. Um, It's a small, very tight core group of us. And I actually had a very circuitous route (laughs) um, to get here. And I think this is kind of a lesson that you, you know, uh, none of the decisions that you make after training happen to be have to be finalized. And if, you know, there's a passion that you encounter later on in your career that really moves you and um, that happened with me, then, you know, your practice can always evolve and you can pursue new opportunities. And sometimes that new opportunity leads to a wonderful fit. And for me, that was the case in liver anesthesia. So I actually began as a pediatric resident, pursued a fellowship in pediatric critical care, Um, ultimately decided I wanted to um, have a combined practice of pediatric critical care and pediatric anesthesia, which led me to uh, pursue a second residency in adult anesthesia. And during that time, I uh, performed as a resident several liver transplant cases and just fell in love with the patient population, uh, my attending group who were amazing, many of whom still um, are part of the team today and continue to be amazing and continue to teach me every day, um, and really enjoyed the multidisciplinary sort of collaborative and very challenging dynamic um, approach both in the OR and then pre-op and post-op in the care of these patients. And um, as a result of that experience, my uh, 
practice shifted. And I currently am an adult liver anesthesiologist at Hopkins, very heavily involved in liver transplant anesthesia, um, and actually don't practice pediatric critical care any longer. So that's my background. And I love that. I I love that story. Um, And I I use that without using your name, but I tell people the story. And we've had other folks who have done pediatrics and pediatric critical care and pediatric, you know, then they come to do anesthesia. And everyone assumes they're going to practice pediatric anesthesia. And then sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do adult, you know, liver like you or adult cardiac or, you know, whatever it may be. And every once in a while, I'll have a resident come kind of in, in angst. You know, they're saying, oh, you know, I've done all this prior training and I'm just I'm really torn because I, I feel like I want to do this, but I can't, you know, don't, isn't that, doesn't that just mean I've wasted all this time? And I always tell them, you know, about people like you who, no, it's not a waste, right? I mean, everything you've done has made you, has gotten you where you are. It's probably going to make you a better practitioner in whatever you do. And the only waste would be not doing what you want to do because you feel like you're, you know, you've, you've yeah, sunk. You've already committed. Yeah. Exactly. And I will second that, Jed. And I tell the residents the same thing. I say sort of every aspect of your training, as long as you are involved in that training, like, you know, with passion and interest and desire to learn and improve will impact you as a clinician, whether it teaches you communication skills or flexibility or adaptability, or, um, you know, you mature as, you know, that OR practitioner that can lead an operative team, you know, every, every aspect of your training will, will, will impact that and, and, and build, um, build your development as a clinician and, and a professional. So no training is ever lost if you, if you approach each portion of your training with that attitude, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, completely agree. Well, fantastic. All right. So let's talk about liver transplant anesthesia. So let's start at the beginning. Let's say you know you've got a patient who's coming in for a transplant. What do you want, whether it's you doing it alone and you're kind of looking up a patient on your own, or if you've got a resident, you know, who's going to be kind of working with you and you say to them, all right, here's what I want to know. Here's what I need you to look up. And here's what I want to know about this patient. Or if it's on your own, you know, here's what you're going to look up. Here's what you're going to get from the patient. What is it that you want to know in preparation? Yeah, so these are excellent questions. And I um, actually pursue all of my patients in kind of the same way, and I encourage the residents to do the same thing. Our practice has changed considerably, and we are taking care of, um, you know, much sicker patients in the operating room that are requiring liver transplantation. Um, Average melds are higher, median melds are higher. These patients have um, much more significant extrahepatic disease. We're pushing the limits with patients that we can operate on. We're putting more marginal grafts in patients that are sicker. And, um, so, so there's a challenge with that. And what that means is that as a liver anesthesiologist, we, we simply can't look at the chart and say, what are these patients, what is this patient's liver debilitation? What is this patient's, um, you know, meld and how does that impact their physiology? It, that's one of the components, but there are several factors that we, we consider when we're reviewing a patient. And so I, sort of try in my head to identify what the patient's liver disease is and then also what the extrahepatic disease is, the extrahepatic disease burden, and then what the comorbidities are completely unrelated to their liver disease. And then there are always sort of generic uh, sort of surgical questions that you want to ask yourself um, that 
will impact, you know, your, your anesthetic planning for any kind of surgery. If it's, you know, if it's a cardiac surgery and a pump case and there are redo times three for, you know, a repeat valve, you want to know those things. Um, it's the same thing for, you know, a liver transplantation. If this is a redo times three and the patient, you know, has had three liver transplants in the past over the past, you know, 30 years, and you're anticipating a very hostile abdomen, those are important things to consider, even though they're not really related specifically to the patient's hepatic decompensations. So I try to kind of um, be very structured about it and systematic about it, and, and but separate it into those categories. So what is the acuity of the patient's liver disease and the chronicity of the liver disease? Is this patient an acute fulminant that's sick? Is it an acute alcoholic that has acute alcoholic hepatitis but really has no cirrhosis and will probably have a fairly uneventful perioperative course and recovery? Is this patient an acute on chronic liver patients where they have chronic smoldering cirrhosis but can come in with or present with an acute decompensation like an episode of sepsis or a GI bleed, you know, takes this patient who has, again, chronic debilitations from their liver disease and bumps their meld from 20 to like 38. And now they're sort of, you know, declining rapidly in the ICU with multi-organ failure. Uh, that's, those are things that I want to consider and, and, and want to account for. And then um, after I kind of globally identify what type of patient I'm evaluating and, 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 and soon, to, soon to administer anesthesia to, I try to um, identify what the primary organ failures or dysfunctions are and, um, and uh, determine how those are going to impact my anesthetic planning and my anticipation for what the operative course is going to um, going to look like. And I do that systematically. So, you know, assess their neurologic function, assess their pulmonary function, assess their, you know, cardiovascular and circulatory function, their renal function, their metabolic profile and deficiencies and sort of integrity, um, their hematologic status and their endocrinologic status. And, and specifically, again, identify what the deficiencies are in each of those areas, what can or needs to be optimized, what cannot be optimized, but will need special attention in the operating room. That involves a review of imaging, a review of laboratory, very importantly, a physical exam at the bedside and a very thorough uh, chart review and, you know, discussion with uh, all uh, multidisciplinary specialists involved in the care of the patient. Um, And then, after I sort of assess those things about the patient, then I specifically think about what to anticipate from a surgical perspective. So again, is this a redo patient? Is their body habit as such that I anticipate a very challenging dissection and hepatectomy? Is it a wide patient, an obese patient, and patient with a very large AP diameter? Um, is there a very narrow space in the belly cavity that will portend a more challenging dissection? Is it a redo liver transplant? Does this patient have a history of sort of hepatic biliary surgery, which would portend that, you know, the abdomen will be hostile or the hilum will be frozen and there will be dense adhesions. Does the patient have, you know, previous um, abdominal infections that again would portend that the dissection will be challenging. What kind of transplantation am I expecting? Is this going to be sort of a classic hepatectomy or is it going to be, you know, our more more common uh, hepatectomy with cable preservation. How does that impact the duration of the surgery, the anticipated blood loss, et cetera? Um, 
and then and then what what the graft quality is like and how that will impact the surgical course. So those are all things that I try to consider when I'm evaluating the patient and when I'm planning for my my um, anesthetics. Great. All right. So a couple questions. So mm-hmm. unlike, you know, if I'm taking a patient to the OR for pretty much any other surgery, I mean, I guess in, maybe if it was, you know, a really advanced cancer, but even then, if I, there's certain things that if I found, right, like they had unstable angina, right, at the time, I would say, we can't, we can't do it, right? We got to cancel this case. Mm-hmm. And, and honestly, all that would happen, depending on what it was, was we might put it off a few days, or I guess in the extreme, they might need some other procedure like a cardiac cath or something. But, you know, with a liver transplant, this is their opportunity, right? There's a match, they got chosen based on their meld and everything else. And so if, if they don't get it today, they may not get it ever, right? Mm-hmm. So are there things that would make you said that in this process of looking at all the things you just said, that you would say, eh, we can't do this? Yeah. So I think that, you know, this kind of brings into um, discussion the concept of futility in transplantation. Um, I think there are certain hard stops that many institutions will sort of um, identify that preclude a patient from transplant candidacy in general. So, you know, and again, I kind of like to lump that into sort of systems. So if a patient is in dense coma, you know, no no signs of neurologic function, obviously that patient will not be a candidate for transplant. If a patient is an acute fulminant, they, you know, have an acute change in their mental status, take them down for imaging and their imaging shows, you know, evidence of brain herniation, that patient is not a candidate for transplant. And the idea is that we are not just, you know, anesthesiologists, but we're also organ stewards, right? Uh, There is a, we know that there is a, Um, mismatch between organ need and organ availability. And we have to be very responsible and thoughtful about who the appropriate recipients are for these organs, because there are a shortage of liver organs and patients will die on the transplant list without an organ. Um, And we would all agree that putting an organ in a patient that is only going to either die post-op or have a horrible quality of life post-op that might be the equivalent to death is not the ideal thing, particularly when there are other candidates that could survive with a transplant with meaningful recovery. Um, You know, if a patient has very severe lung disease that's irreversible, that may be a a sort of no-go, no-starter for certain institutions. Um, uh, Acute RV failure or chronic RV failure and dysfunction, irreversible and severe pulmonary hypertension, severely depressed left ventricular performance. These are all contraindications for for pursuit of liver transplant. Critical valve disease um, without a plan for valvular intervention is a contraindication for pursuing liver transplant. Um, The same with critical coronary disease. Again, you can discuss as a group combining a liver transplant with a cap or combining liver transplant with valve surgery and those those procedures have been performed uh, before with success. But again, that requires a more multidisciplinary approach. In terms of futility, I think there have been several discussions about sort of the best way to identify these cases and what factors would, um, you know, impact your decision making with several consensus statements from expert panels that have involved hepatologists, surgeons, anesthesiologists, and intensivists. And I would say there's no full consensus document, although there have been, again, several several papers and commentary written um, uh, attempting to 
attempting to, you know, create a consensus statement for what these futility, um, what futility means in liver transplant and, and which patients should, should be considered um, not candidates because of their underlying disease process. And most of the physiologic variables that, um, that are utilized to make that decision-making are Again, circulatory integrity um, or vasoactive support requirements. Again, the severity of lung disease as evidenced by severely depressed PF ratios. Um, metabolic failure as evidenced by a rising, an elevated and rising lactate, generally a lactate about 10. Um, and, uh, and then frailty, sort of severe frailty that is so debilitating that a patient's physical um, performance is compromised and they're dependent on hospital care, which is a challenging thing to, I think, identify because some patients are acutely ill. And when you meet them in the hospital, they are dependent on hospital care. They can't get out of bed, haven't been able to get out of bed for one or two weeks. They're on renal replacement therapy. Um, and I think this is where sort of some individualized approach and uh, multidisciplinary discussion becomes very important. You know, is this a 38-year-old that was drinking and had an acute alcoholic episode and is now in the ICU and renal replacement therapy, but up until two weeks ago was walking his dog and playing with his kids? Or is this a 65-year-old who has had cirrhosis for three years from NASH and now has had an acute decompensation and has been in the ICU for four weeks on renal replacement therapy in and out of FIB with smoldering, you know, um, sepsis and, um, you know, impaired pulmonary performance and sort of marginal cardiovascular performance, but really for the past year has not been functional in any way and, you know, has not been working or physically active anyway. And those two patients may have been in the hospital for the same duration of time acutely and may have the same support requirements for their extrahepatic disease, but have very different um, chronic uh, protoplasm and physiologic substrate, and, and you would approach them in a different way. Um, so I think those are the factors that, that we consider when determining if a patient um, is, is a candidate for transplant based on the severity of disease and overall feeling of futility of the condition. Great. So there's a pretty extensive workup for a patient who's going to have a liver transplant. And what does that involve? What do you want to see in terms of labs and studies leading up to taking a patient to the OR for this transplant? Yeah, so I think most patients, you know, have a, a pretty extensive um, laboratory uh, profile. You know, w when these patients are listed for liver transplant, they have meld labs that meld labs, excuse me, that have to be checked regularly, which include metabolic labs, hematologic labs, et cetera, et cetera. All patients. Um, undergo uh, screening ECGs and, um, and transthoracic echoes. Um, this varies from institution to institution, but many institutions will pursue some kind of stress testing in all liver transplant candidates. That could be an exercise stress test if they're functionally able. It could be a dobutamine stress test if um, it can't tolerate exercise for whatever reason, or it can be a perfusion scan. Um, many institutions have protocols um, that um, are very regimented about this. Patients need, uh, you know, annual echoes. They need um, by 
uh, like every two year, every three year stress testing to stay up to date. Um, and some institutions actually require coronary angiography on every liver transplant patient. So again, it's fairly unstandardized across the board. Um, there are some institutions like our institution where if a patient, um, you know, doesn't have coronary risk factors and doesn't have metabolic risk factors, we may forego stress testing completely if age appropriate and again, physiologically appropriate. There are some patients that are physically unable to pursue stress testing, particularly in the acute setting, and their listing has been more of a fulminant and acute course because of an acute presentation, and um, but do have risk factors, and then we may pursue alternate testing like calcium scores to determine coronary burden, um, and then based on you know those values, uh, either proceed with transplant. Uh, deny a patient or, or pursue, again, coronary angiography. So there's some kind of cardiovascular screening that has to occur in all patients. Should always uh, be a structural echo to evaluate presence of, you know, um, valve disease that may or may not preclude transplantation and also functional capacity of the patient, um, myocardial functional capacity of the patient, excuse me. And then, um, and then, you know, a screening ECG and then stress testing again is sort of at the discretion of the institution and per their protocol. Um, labs should include, you know, CMP coagulation profile, including um, viscoelastic testing, your um, basic hematologic data, um, infectious screens of concern. All patients should have updated abdominal imaging, which evaluates patency of vascular um, integrity um, within the abdominal cavity. And, um, and then I would say routinely, we don't need specific pulmonary imaging unless there is concern based on patient's gas exchange abnormalities in that, um, in that uh, area. Um, and that's the, the, those are pretty much the highlights in terms of diagnostics. Great. All right. So when you put all this together, let's say there's nothing that's a hard stop. So you're going to proceed to the OR. What in terms of your your actual intraoperative lines, pre-induction, you know, obviously there's some things you're probably doing on everybody. And then there's some things you're probably doing if they are higher risk. So what are the things you're doing on everyone? Does mm -hmm. everyone get, for example, a, a pre-induction A-line or does it depend? So t mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that. How are you getting ready and then actually um, proceeding with an induction and then and lines and things like that in the operating room? Sure. So I will, I'll preface this by saying, again, I think um, institutions are very different in terms of practice. There are some institutions that continue to place PA catheters in all patients, uh, that continue to place dual arterial catheters in all patients, uh, one arterial line for blood draws and one arterial line for invasive hemodynamic monitoring. There are some institutions that will uh, perform both um, transesophageal echo and pulmonary arterial catheterization um, for all patients, regardless of, again, meld acuity and um, anticipated surgical complexity. So, so I think, and there are some institutions that are heavily reliant on venovenous bypass um, for circulatory support during transplantation, while others haven't used that form of support for a decade. So I think all of those things, um, again, kind of vary by institution and by practice. I can definitely tell you what we do here at Johns Hopkins, and we have a fairly homogeneous approach to patients here. Um, 
all of our patients um, receive an arterial catheter after induction of anesthesia. We almost never place pre-induction arterial catheters because most of the indications for uh, pre-induction arterial catheters, I would argue, would preclude a patient from uh, transplant candidacy. Again, critical valve disease, critical coronary disease, severely depressed um, myocardial performance. Uh, we generally place peripheral arterial catheters, not central arterial catheters in our patients. And then subsequent to that, we will place central venous access, which is determined by patency of the patient's vasculature. So location of um, the vessel that is utilized will be uh, impacted by that. And then also whether or not we um, are anticipating massive bleeding and massive hemorrhage. BB bypass use or requirement versus not. So in our standard patient, we will actually um, place uh, catheters in the jugular vein, generally on the right side, that is our preferred location. We generally place two catheters in the same vessel, which is uh, um, you know unique to Johns Hopkins and I think very few other institutions, but um, uh, it is something that we pursue here. We place one large volume line, which is um, generally an introducer catheter. It will allow us to float a PA catheter during the case or post-operatively or at the initiation of the case if we feel like we need it for pulmonary pressure monitoring and cardiac output monitoring. And then we place a second catheter in the same vein in general, which is a multi-lumen catheter that can be used for infusions and central venous pressures. Um, Placement or monitoring with PA catheters is um, generally at the discretion of the anesthesiologist, and um, the decision to do so is based on the patient's underlying physiology and um, and physiologic compromise. So if a patient has some RV dysfunction and pulmonary hypertension that requires sort of beat-to-beat -beat measure and monitor of pulmonary pressures and cardiac output, then um, we may choose to place uh, a PA catheter for that reason. And specific patient population would be uh, those with portal pulmonary hypertension who, um, you know, are on multiple pulmonary vasodilators to maintain um, uh, adequate RV function and performance and, and, and lower pulmonary vascular um, pressures. Um, and then the decision to place a trans uh, esophageal echo is um, based on similar factors. So again, concern for RV performance in a patient with portal pulmonary hypertension or high suspicion for a cirrhotic cardiomyopathy that may or may not be um, uh, evident by diagnostics uh, that would uh, suggest that the patient is at risk for cardiovascular decline intraoperatively or postoperatively. Uh, we generally do not have any strong, solid in, uh, contraindications to placing TEE in our patients. I always get asked the question, but your patients have varices. Is it safe to place uh, TEEs? And, um, you know, I think there's a fair body of literature now that would, um, th that would support the use of TEE in liver transplantation, and that has become fairly standard in, in a large number of institutions. We have never at our institution had catastrophic GI bleed um, from placing of a TEE probe. Again, it just, you know, should be done judiciously, carefully, um, and, and when indicated. Uh, Great. All right. So lots of options. And, and I, I love that you laid out that one, this varies by institution. I'm sure it varies by attending at, you know, at, to a certain extent. 
And of course, it's going to vary by patient. So, you know, there's, there's not a cookie cutter approach. And I'm sure it's one of the things that makes this really interesting is you have to really dig into the patient and think about what they need. And there's potential downsides to anything. So you want to only use, as you said, what's actually indicated. You've mentioned a few times venovenous bypass. Um, just talk a, a bit about when that is used and when it's not. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, again, classically, this was used very commonly at many institutions. And I think the question uh, and the um, the requirements for the question to use the requirements for use of venovenous bypass is oftentimes, um, you know, again, it varies by institution and what surgeon preferences and what um, anesthesia the anesthesia team's preferences. But the purpose of venovenous bypass is to maintain um, preload and circulatory support if there is a diversion of flow or or compromise of flow or um, isolation of flow and um, and reduction of return of blood volume to the right heart. And um, the most common. Um, reason that you would see that would be if uh, the surgeon is performing a classic hepatectomy and the cava is completely occluded and the portal vein is completely occluded. As we know, that can um, result in a reduction in blood return to the right heart of 60 to 70 percent. Many patients may not be able to tolerate that, particularly if they are not well collateralized. They don't have collateral blood flow from the portal system to the the cable system and or they are maximally contracted, maximally augmented because of their end-stage liver disease physiology and already maximally vasodilated, requiring significant um, vasoactive support. So that patient with a loss of 60 to 70% of venous return to the right heart may not tolerate that from a cardiovascular standpoint. And if there are options to avoid a classic hepatectomy and full cable isolation, that should be pursued. But if not, for whatever reason, again, based on the patient's anatomy, the size of the new liver in relation to the size of the patient or surgical preference and full cable isolation is required and a classic hepatectomy is pursued, then some ability to divert blood and return back to the right heart and maintain circulatory support will be required and that necessitates venovenous bypass. Interestingly, there are no consistent studies that demonstrate that use of venovenous bypass improves patient outcome, reduces um, GI complications, reduces you know, complications related to renal disease or dysfunction secondary to compromised renal, uh, renal vein outflow. Um, improves graft survival, or again, it improves patient survival. So this is really um, a therapy that should be utilized based on the patient's physiologic needs and the surgical requirements of the patient. Many times we can get by without venovenous bypass, even with classic hepatectomies and full cable isolations in patients that are severely compromised if the duration of cable isolation and portal venous isolation is is relatively short, so on the order of an hour and a half or less. If we can clamp the cava, clamp the portal, get that old liver out and start sewing the liver in within one to two hours, supporting the patient aggressively with vasoactives and catecholamines and gentle volume loading is possible and then can avoid the 
that, that therapeutic intervention, which is not without risk. And as we know, venovenous bypass carries risk, including the risk of placing large bore lines to allow for venous return, uh, risks of thromboembolic disease, risk of air emboli, risk of shearing, um, potential blood exposure requirements, and then, you know, additional staff that's required to, to run a perfusion pump. Great. All right. So definitely an option. Do you have any feel for how, what percent of, you know, are the ones we do uh, use uh, venovenous bypass? In years here at Hopkins, we have not used venovenous bypass for a single liver transplant. Okay. We have used fetal venous bypass for um, large liver resections that require cable reconstruction, oftentimes because these patients don't have portal hypertension, so they're not well collateralized, and they actually can't tolerate loss of portal flow and and full cable um, isolation, particularly if they're vulnerable patients for other reasons. Again, they have EFs that are depressed or um, they have cardiorespiratory insufficiency from extrahepatic disease. Um, but for liver transplants here at Hopkins, we actually have not used venous bypass for the past, I would say, eight to 10 years. Wow. Okay, great. So it's an option, but uh, we at least are not using it much or if at all. Um, all right. So the first stage of the procedure is the dissection phase. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that. Um, what are you thinking about? What do you want to be prepared for? What challenges do you anticipate? Yeah. So I always tell my residents that this is the most important phase of the liver transplant, even though everyone always talks about reperfusion and how sort of perturbing that is. And, you know, that's kind of the moment where the liver anesthesiologist becomes the hero and we avoid doing CPR and we're administering epinephrine and echoing and, you know, ensuring that the patient, you know, doesn't die when the systolic drops to 40 during reperfusion. You know, that's the exciting part of transplant. But really, I think the most important most important stage of transplant is that dissection, is that hepatectomy. It's how you set your patient up for success during reperfusion, how you anticipate what your reperfusion is going to be like, and what you can do to physiologically optimize that patient so that when you go into reperfusion, it's as smooth as it can possibly be, and you avoid the catastrophic complications. That's oftentimes with difficult hepatectomies, the most challenging portion of the liver transplant. You're working the hardest. So so what do I anticipate? Many of these are um, related to patient factors and many of them are related to surgical factors. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of the knowledge and understanding of what the surgery actually entails, and then discussion with the surgical team before surgery. Um, The surgical team oftentimes can give you very valuable insight into whether or not they feel like this is going to be a challenging hepatectomy. You know, I go in for surgery with my resident, we chat with the surgeons, and we hear this is a hostile mess of an abdomen. This patient had a whipple 10 years ago. This hilum is going to be completely frozen. We're probably going to take three hours just to get to the hilum and, and dissect out, and then it's going to be a bloody mess. This patient has had multiple episodes of SVP. The liver is massive. It's stiff, and the patient has is tiny. Just to mobilize this thing is going to, you know, be a bear. I'm expecting 10 liters of blood loss before I even hit the cava. These are important considerations to know. And again, some things that we don't always sort of have in mind as liver anesthesiologists, we get, or any anesthesiologist in general, you know, we get very wrapped up in 
the renal failure and the, you know, two dose vasoactive support that the patient is on and when the next dose of antibiotics are and if the cardiac, you know, screening labs are up or screening uh, data is up to date and don't really think about things like the size of the liver, the size of the caudate, how it circumferentially wraps around the cava. Is that going to make the, the actual dissection much more challenging versus not? And that's insight that the surgeon can provide. So once you sort of tease out what the surgical approach is going to be, how challenging from a surgical perspective they feel like the hepatectomy is going to be, then it's going to be about sort of what, again, the physiologic impairments are of the patient and how you expect those to evolve during a challenging dissection. So if a patient, again, is starting at the beginning of the case with severe acidemia and marginal potassium levels or severely hyponatremic, severely um, anemic with profound medical coagulopathy, they're requiring transfusions um, on a daily basis. Um, their EF is, you know, 55% when you would expect them to have an EF of 75% in the setting of hyperdynamic circulation. You know, you can anticipate that this is a patient in the operating room that may require massive transfusion in that setting, may have progression of metabolic derangements with progression of acidemia and hyperkalemia. They're hyponatremic to begin with, and you're anticipating, you know, loading these patients with a fair amount of solute containing product like platelets or cryo or FFP, how that will impact your serum sodium and the rise of your serum sodium, what you need to do to balance out that rise with your crystalloid administration. This may be a patient where, you know, you recognize that sort of large fluid shifts and major changes in volume and loading conditions will not necessarily be well tolerated in someone with impaired diastology and very marginal systolic performance. And you may have to be much more judicious um, with your product and fluid administration and mindful of, you know, how rapidly you're, you're administering those things and be very judicious about, you know, how much volume to give and in, and in what form. And, um, and it will impact again, how, how you decide to monitor this patient invasively or non-invasively. Um, so again, I think to myself, what are my patient's initial, um, deficiencies and debilitation? How do I expect that to progress during, during the hepatectomy? How challenging do I expect that to be during the hepatectomy? And then how can I anticipate and optimize those things? Does that mean utilizing renal replacement therapy in the OR, utilizing hypo, um, um, hypoosmotic fluids in the setting of, you know, my anticipation that I will need to administer high concentration, high solute load um, blood products. What kind of blood products do I need in the room? How am I going to monitor this patient? Um, how do I, uh, you know, treat preemptively any kind of elevated potassium level in a patient with impaired renal performance? Um, and, and, in doing all those things, optimize the integrity of their cardiovascular profile and their metabolic profile. So when we enter the state of reperfusion, which is a huge insult to the body, we are in the best shape possible. Euvolemic with preservation of uh, cardiovascular performance on the appropriate vasoactives with the necessary um, diagnostics in place to recognize acute failure of the right or the left ventricle? How do I preempt any arrhythmias or risk for arrhythmias? And how do I enter reperfusion with the most optimal metabolic and electrolyte profile to, to 
to um, maximize my chances of successful reperfusion with minimal physiologic impairment. All right, stay with us. We'll be right back. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. And we're back with Dr. Nicole Rizcala. That's fantastic. In so many ways, that's like an, a, a description of just good anesthesia, right? It's like making sure <laughs> you're know. ready. You're yeah, ready. Sure you're ready, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. exactly what we do, right? We anticipate the worst and hope for the best. And that's what I tell our patients as well as listen. And when we consent our patients, we tell them about all these bad things that could potentially happen. And we say, listen, hopefully 80% of these things don't happen, but our job is to be ready for a hundred percent of these things to be happen. A hundred percent of these things to happen and try to minimize those risks. And oftentimes just good anticipatory planning and intervention can minimize those risks. Um, and so your homework and your hard work actually starts before transplant to set up your plan. And then that hard work during the hepatectomy can really make the remainder of your case so beautiful and so smooth. Right. It's one of the ironic things, right, about being an anesthesiologist is that if everything goes great, it looks like you didn't do anything. You're just sitting there and nothing goes badly. And, and people say, oh, well, you know, I guess you were just sitting there doing nothing. But of course, the reason it went well is because you had prepared for everything and you probably did some things that, that prevented some of those bad things from happening. So, you know, and that's always what I tell the students when they say, you know, well, what are you really doing back there? And when the med students, you know, rotate with us and I tell them, it may look like we're not doing anything, but what we're doing is making sure we're ready for anything so that if it happens, we're ready. And if it doesn't happen, it's because we prepared well and prevented it. Mm -hmm. um, all right. So what about um, when we, uh, I just want to highlight also uh, what you pointed out, which I think is so key about talking to the surgical team. And it seems like such a no brainer, but it's come up on the show a lot, which is that very few anesthesiologists talk to the surgeons before the day of surgery. Right. But I think having that discussion, whether it's via email or in person or on the phone or whatever, um, and saying even just as simple as what you said, which is, what are you anticipating that you're worried about, right? It's such valuable information. It's not limited to liver transplants. I do that with every single case I do. And I know some other folks who do, but a lot don't. And I, I can't recommend it highly enough is just reach out. You know, it takes three minutes to send an email describing any of your concerns and asking the surgeon for theirs. And then you get really valuable information. And if there's, you know, some back and forth and you need to have a phone call, great. But you know, often it's just a matter of hearing what they think and, and getting that information, which and is really key. That emphasizes the partnership between anesthesia and surgery, right? And one of the, I think, most amazing things about our field is the fact that, you know, that partnership impacts patient care. When a surgeon feels and sees that you're committed to their patient, you guys have a shared goal. And that goal is to take 
to give the deliver the best care that you can to this patient and enhance their survival in every way possible that does nothing but foster trust and respect. And that does nothing but improve the dynamics within the operating room. Because your role as, as an anesthesiologist is not just to give your patient great care, but to really lead that OR, to show that, you know, you're there to, to, to provide this care, to keep the patient safe, and to keep everyone in the room calm. <laughs> and and, and, you know, that is really fostered, I think, by good communication with your surgical team. Yeah. And many times you'll see a patient and, you know, you've been the last person to see that patient and the surgeon hasn't seen that patient in a couple of days or maybe at all. And you'll provide very valuable insight and information that, that may impact their decision making. So, yeah. Couldn't agree more. All right. So let's talk to about the surgical approach. We've, you know, you said you mentioned the kind of classical hepatectomy with complete occlusion, but what are the options for how the surgeons are going to do this procedure um, of liver transplant? Yeah. So I think that there are two sort of major options. There's a classic epitectomy with a bicable um, approach to anastomosis of the new graft. And then there's a hepatectomy with cable preservation, um, which oftentimes uh, sets uh sets the patient up for a piggyback anastomosis. The classic hepatectomy involves, you know, taking the old liver out um, with the retrohepatic cava in block. So this necessitates a superhepatic venous clamp, uh, infrahepatic venous clamp, and then removal of the liver with the retrohepatic cava in block after the hepatic artery, the portal vein, and the biliary tree are ligated and, um, and dissected. Um, and what that results in, again, is cable discontinuity. So there is um, no retrohepatic cava that has been removed, and there is no continued cable flow um, during the period of time when the patient is physically anhepatic. Um, and, and the support of that patient can be again, with just ginger volume administration and vasoactive support and cardioactive support to augment cardiac performance and augment cardiac output as possible um, and support perfusion pressures with um, vasoactives until the new graft is sewed in, or it can involve venovenous bypass as mentioned earlier. Uh, the hepatectomy with cable preservation is exactly that. So it involves removing the liver while preserving continuity of the vena cava in the patient. And that is a much more challenging, in my opinion, um, surgical approach because it involves meticulous dissection of the liver off of the retrohepatic cava. And that can be an hours-long procedure if there are several sort of adhesions and short hepatic segments that connect the liver, the retrohepatic uh, uh, cava to the liver. If the, you know, caudate of the liver is big and bulky and kind of circumferentially wrapped around the vena cava, that can be very challenging to extract the liver off of the vena cava and sort of get to all of those hepatic veins as they drain from the liver into the vena cava and mobilize it. But ultimately, the goal is to remove the liver, leave the vena cava preserved, and leave continuity of flow through the vena cava preserved. And then when the new liver is sewn in, again, it will depend on how the cava or how the liver was removed. So if the liver was removed with the retrohepatic cava, then the new liver has to be sewn in in an anatomic lie that restores cable continuity with the retrohepatic cava. And that involves, you know, bicable anastomosis. 
Um, and the liver lies in the body in a normal lie, as opposed to if the cava is preserved, then the new liver will be sewn in oftentimes uh, in a piggyback approach, which means it's kind of turned on its side. Um, venotomies are made in the retrohepatic cava um, of the donor organ and the vena cava of the recipient organ. And then in a side-to-side -side fashion, cava is anastomosed in a cavocavostomy to restore venous outflow out of the liver. Um, that is oftentimes a faster so because there's one less venous communication that um, is required to reestablish venous outflow. But again, the hepatectomy um, with um, uh, hepatectomy with cable preservation can be technically more more challenging. There are some conditions of the patient that would preclude the ability to do a hepatectomy with cable preservation, namely. Um, you know, a bud chiari where there are large thromboses within the retrohepatic cava that would need to be removed with the liver um, or a large thrombosis within the hepatic veins that again would need to be removed within the liver. Sometimes a surgeon just knows if I proceed with a classic hepatectomy in this patient and just don't dissect the liver off of the vena cava, that will save me a four-hour sort of dissection and probably 15 liters of blood. So that's what we're going to do. Not that the patient requires it, but it's safer for the patient. Um, and so they'll make the decision to do that also. Great. All right. So that all makes a ton of sense. So once we get the liver out. We're now obviously in the anhepatic phase. So what are your thoughts and concerns during this part of the procedure? So generally during the anhepatic phase, the metabolic and hematologic disarray can precipitate fairly quickly. Um, the patients can become much more coagulopathic, much more hypothermic. Um, they will become more acidemic after both the, uh, after the vascular inflow is occluded to the liver and the liver is um, rendered metabolically inert. As acidosis progresses, you know, you can get additional metabolic derangements, including hyperkalemia. Oftentimes patients um, become more vasodilated, more hyperdynamic, and can have some elevation in their pulmonary pressures as well in the setting of all of these metabolic derangements and progression of acidemia. And again, those are things that you have to monitor very closely. If there's new onset or progression of coagulopathy, that may need to be medically corrected aggressively um, in anticipation of the reperfusion event. Great. All right. And then, of course, we come to, as you said, the event that a lot of people think is the most important part, but that you've told us um, should be well prepared for during what is really the most important part of the dissection. But now we get to the reperfusion. What is going on in your mind there? You've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about it in advance, but what are you anticipating? What are you looking for? Right. So what happens during reperfusion? So, you know, during the sew-in, um, you know, venous outflow is restored and then the portal venous connection is made during the anastomosis. And right before reperfusion, uh, the clamp is removed from either the, either the, generally the vena cava and, um, and some blood return is sort of reestablished to the right heart and um, contribution to sort of your your new cardiac output or your um, new baseline cardiac output, and then subsequent to that, you know, portal venous uh, the portal venous clamp is re removed, and with that um, uh, introduces a, a fair amount of toxins and sort of 
unpleasantries that 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 have accumulated in in the enteric system when the portal vein has been clamped. So if your portal vein has been clamped for like 45 minutes, probably not such a big deal. If your portal vein has been clamped for three or four hours and your patient has a diseased gut, that could be a hot mess, right? So mm-hmm. so those things are very important to note. And so if I have a patient that again has a diseased gut and is very compromised and their portal system or the portal system has been occluded or, or the portal vein has been clamped for three or four hours and I'm entering reperfusion with a lactate of 14 and a pH of 7.2 might be a little bit rockier, particularly if my patient is also, by the way, 65 with cirrhotic cardiomyopathy and chronically debilitated and has an RV that is, you know, marginal at best. If I have a young, healthy, robust, or you know, normal age, healthy, robust HCC patient with a normal biologic melt who has a very uncomplicated hepatectomy and a portal clamp or portal venous clamp duration of about 40 minutes prior to reperfusion, that may be a very well tolerated reperfusion. But um, when the portal clamp is released, there are, there's a fair amount of blood that again, gets reintroduced into the circulation. And that blood is oftentimes blood that has been sitting stagnant in the gut, accumulating endotoxin, vasoactive mediators, bacteria, lactate, nitrogenous waste, acid, um, much of the... uh, um, some of the fluid that is sort of sitting stagnant in the liver a preservation solution has been flushed out of the liver before reperfusion, but some of it may not be and may not have been effectively. And that is cold, cold fluid that is, again, rich and ele- with elevated potassium load. And that gets reintroduced into the systemic circulation. And so you have a large volume load of pretty toxic crummy liver that, I'm sorry, pretty toxic crummy blood that enters the right side of the heart. So big volume load, big change in loading conditions and and, and workload of the right heart and and a big rise in acid level that impacts pulmonary vascular resistance and and elevates pulmonary pressures. So you have a right heart that is now increased workload for, you know, with higher, again, loading conditions, pumping against a higher vascular resistance bed and you have the potential for arrhythmias, precipitation of arrhythmias related to hypothermia and acid load and potassium and um, potentially hypocalcemia that has ensued during the hepatectomy. And so the reperfusion event is a setup for right ventricular dysfunction and failure, which oftentimes can lead to left ventricular dysfunction and failure and cardiovascular collapse and potentially arrest. So when we prepare for the event, again, depending on the severity of the reperfusion event, the complexity of the patient, the deficiencies entering the state of reperfusion, it will be important to have your emergency medications, including cardioactives and vasoactives, the appropriate diagnostics in place to recognize signs of right ventricular failure or left ventricular failure, be that your PA catheter or your TEE or your non-invasive cardiac output monitor, and um, preemptively treat arrhythmias if they occur or plan for arrhythmias that you think may occur. That may be a Zolpad on the patient and a Zol in the room. That may be administering preemptively magnesium or calcium. That may be administering amiodarone in a patient that has a tendency or, or a history 
history, high history of um, fibrillation in the past, uh, atrial fibrillation in the past, and then managing all of those things and mitigating some of the acute insults that, um, that the patient will encounter during the reperfusion event. Now, I have to ask uh, about bicarb. So, you know, you got all this acid being dumped on the heart. I, I know for a fact that a lot of people, anytime there's acid, are going to say, well, we better counter it with bicarb. So um, what's the current take on whether or not to use bicarb preemptively in uh, the reperfusion phase? Yeah, so we as a group tend not to um, administer bicarb preemptively. We will treat acidemia with bicarb administration. So if a patient is entering reperfusion again with a pH of 7.1, expecting that that pH will drop further during reperfusion, I would administer bicarb. But if my patient has a pH of 7.25 and I think, you know, the reperfusion event is otherwise going to be reasonably well tolerated, I don't administer bicarb preemptively. Again, I think that's very... Um, practitioner-dependent and institution-dependent, but routinely we do not administer bicarb even to counter an anticipated acid load. Great. All right. Is there something called a neohepatic phase? And if so, what does that refer to? Yeah, so the neohepatic phase generally refers to the phase following the reperfusion event, begins at the time of hepatic arterial anastomosis and ends with, you know, completion of biliary um, anastomosis if that is planned during the initial liver transplant and closure. Um, That is uh, generally the period of time where... um, you know, the, the, the new liver is um, beginning to achieve blood flow. The portal system is becoming decompressed. If post-reperfusion syndrome occurred, that oftentimes will begin to abate. And then you'll get an assessment of what the function of the new liver is. Um, and that is entirely dependent on the quality of the graft. So if your graft is arriving to you and, you know, it's accrued a cold time of eight hours and it's come from a bit of a fatty donor and there's 30% macrosteatosis and, um, you know, the donor was a DCD donor and, um, you know, the liver, you know, has arrived from a hep C donor, like all those factors may contribute to what uh, will impact, sorry, the, uh, the, the, recovery of that graft function and the immediacy of the recovery of that graft. So if the liver is a great quality liver from a 22-year-old and the cold time is short and it came from a brain-dead donor and the, the biopsy was pristine, that liver will work pretty quickly on the table and you should start to see significant improvements in the patient's physiology in the operating theater. And again, you as the anesthesiologist can anticipate which direction um, the patient will go, whether there will be initial improvement or some initial decline based on the quality of graft and the characteristics of the graft, which you should be able to um, have that information, you know, from your surgical team. Um, Interestingly, some patients get sicker during the neohepatic phase before they get better. So we oftentimes have cancer patients that, again, have very low biologic melts. They just have a cancer in their liver. Their liver needs to come out. But they're at home. They're walking their dog. They're going to the gym daily. They're eating well. They're functionally quite robust and healthy. But they get kind of a 
from equality graft. And you know what? Our surgeons have to be very aggressive oftentimes with getting these grafts for our patients because the alternative is, I mean, if they waited for the perfect graft for every patient, many of our patients wouldn't get a liver and they would die from their underlying conditions. So sometimes a more marginal graft is placed in these patients and that liver functions a little bit less well than the initial liver that they had in them. And they may get more sick initially after transplant, right? They may have some delayed functional recovery of that graft. They may become coagulopathic in that neohepatic phase, acidotic, hypothermic, um, hypoglycemic. They may need to be packed and come back to the OR the next day or the day after for definitive closure. And, And again, those are things that you can anticipate and predict. Ultimately, the goal is that these patients go home and they leave with a graft that has functionally recovered and now they don't have a cancer. And so their six-month survival is is 100%. But um, in that initial post-operative period, that patient actually may become more sick um, than they were when they came in. And that's important to you know, identify. That's important to know in terms of your planning in the OR and what to counsel the ICU. And also important when you discuss with the patient what to expect. These are things that we anticipate. You may be, you know, asleep with a breathing tube for the next 48 hours. We anticipate that. Ultimately, you will recover, but we'll just have to get you through that initial perioperative course. Great. All right. So we've made it through. We're post-op, are we going to extubate in the OR or not? How do you make that decision when you're thinking about um, your patient? And I'm sure this is patient dependent, but you know, what are you thinking about? Yeah. So I think, again, this has actually changed quite a bit in the past five to 10 years, particularly at this institution. We have an extubation rate of upwards of 85% um, at Hopkins. And we've really become quite aggressive with you know, extubating early and as able. So I would say our approach here at Hopkins is really that extubation is the default. Um, and something has to steer me away from extubating my patient. And that something may be that the graft isn't working well, the patient is being packed, left open for sort of damage control surgery, and then a return for interval delayed um, abdominal closure and biliary reconstruction. Um, Or it may be that just the graft is not recovered function yet, the acidosis is progressing, the patient still requires, you know, multiple vasoactives, has high metabolic needs, and, you know, they, they won't do well if they're extubated. It may be the underlying, like you said, global condition of the patient going into surgery. This patient was very deconditioned, very frail, significantly sarcopenic, um, you know, with multi-organ dysfunction and debilitation, and the surgery was complex and probably needs a good 24 to 48 hours of, you know, recovery, resumption of strength, confirmed, you know, recovery of graft function to optimize their chances of successful extubation. But if everything goes as anticipated, the transplant surgery itself is completed, the graft shows signs of recovery, the patient has um, all of the normal extubation readiness criteria um, uh, checked off in terms of success, um, anticipation of success, Um, regardless of blood product administration, regardless of duration of surgery, regardless of age of the patient, uh, regardless of complexity of the surgery, again, provided the surgery is intact, um, the, um, the, the approach would be to attempt to extubate that patient um, or at least facilitate 
a more rapid extubation in the initial immediate post-operative phase. And what does that mean? That means reversing a patient in the OR, placing them on a sedation strategy or no sedation strategy, but placing them on potentially a sedation strategy that allows for spontaneous breathing and assessment of their, you know, pulmonary mechanics and performance, um, lightening the sedation so the patient can awake and follow commands and, and, and sort of uh, setting them up for a, a more rapid and enhanced um, liberation from mechanical ventilation in the ICU after a brief observation period. There are many institutions that actually have protocols like fast track protocols and extubation protocols where a patient has to meet certain criteria, have um, a certain, you know, biologic meld um, entering transplant and um, have uh, certain surgical characteristics that would confirm that the surgery itself has been uncomplicated, uh, meet criteria in terms of lactate requirement and vasoactive requirement and a transfusion threshold. Um, And then um, there are many institutions that will completely bypass the ICU in those conditions. So if, you know, a patient, again, with cancer patient, low meld, no transfusions, no vasoactive support, liver is working well at the end of the case, They will be observed in the ICU, or sorry, observed in the operating room, extubated, big lines come out, and then they go to the equivalent of an IMC bed postoperatively and bypass the ICU completely. Great. We're starting to hear the term liver ERAS. Um, So I'm sure it incorporates some of these things, but what do we think about with a liver ERAS or early recovery after surgery protocol? Yeah, and I think liver ERAS is not just anesthetic care, but also sort of surgical care. So it's, Mm -hmm. again, sort of pursuing this early extubation, early mobilization, um, early removal of nasogastric tubes and drains, um, early uh, uh, enteral intake, and um, and, and, uh, early participation with physical therapy and mobilization um, out of bed. And um, so similar principles to ERAS in other surgical specialties, but extrapolated to the transplant program and or transplant patient population. And I think, you know, because the transplant population is so variable in terms of the patient sort of protoplasm and substrate, it can be challenging to globally implement uh, a program like this. Um, But but, you know, I think it's, it's a good goal to have and, and could benefit the majority of our patients and truly reduce ICU length of stay and, and potentially hospital length of stay and, and, and complications associated with that. Great. All right. So if the patient goes to the ICU, mm-hmm. um, which, which certainly most of them, I, I imagine, certainly in our institution and, and most mm-hmm. of them, I'm sure, nationally do, what are the initial goals in the ICU? Yeah. So I think the initial goals are really, um, you know, I think the goals in the ICU are really to support uh, graft integrity and graft recovery and then, and then patient recovery. And, um, you know, again, depending on the complexity of the patient and the stability of the patient, that may be a very easy task or it could be a very challenging task. So if the patient is um, compromised 
and um, the surgical course was challenging and the graft is not fully recovered, that may involve, you know, ongoing volume administration, ongoing correction of coagulopathy, ongoing reversal of hypothermia, ongoing support of extrahepatic dysfunction with initiation or continuation of renal replacement therapy and correction of metabolic derangements, titrating vasoactives, um, potentially identifying and treating newly new pathology. Um, again, if a patient was in the operating room and seemed stable initially, but then developed acute cardiovascular decline or dysfunction and has a new cardiomyopathy, um, addressing that and supporting that. Um, if there were complications in the operating room that have led to injuries, that then again, necessitate ongoing support, um, you know, that may be something that needs to begin in the operating room and then continue in the ICU. But the goal should really be about judicious volume administration, titrated the patient's needs, maintenance of hemodynamics, really surveillance for ongoing graft function or dysfunction recovery, um, surveillance for ongoing bleeding or necessities. Um, requirements for reversal of coagulopathy, and then and then monitoring of any new onset extra organ dysfunction or recovery of extra organ uh, disease. Great. All right. Let's move to talking about how one gets to be a liver anesthesiologist. So what's the training pathway? And there may be more than one, but if somebody out there is listening and says, that's what I want to do, uh, what would you tell them? What should they kind of plot out? If it's something that you are really interested and involved in and uh, interested in and in, in desirous of pursuing, there are specific liver transplant anesthesia fellowship programs, which are at present hybrid programs that involve junior attending time in the operating room and then, you know, extra time in in liver transplant in particular. And I think the most important thing and and for these programs to be um, sort of functional and operational, they have to be affiliated with a high volume center. So a center that will guarantee, you know, that we perform 120, 150 livers a year, and you will be exposed to and participate in at least 50 livers during your year fellowship. Um, And then all of the sort of training that should accompany actual OR time, which involves you know, work with hepatology, evaluation with these patients in clinic, experience with the blood bank, echocardiographic training, um, you know, some time with um, uh, the surgical team and, and time in the operating room, actually, you know, watching the procurements and watching the actual transplant surgeries themselves. And many programs, uh, almost all liver transplant anesthesia programs are similar in terms of those components um, that enhance and, um, and complete your, your experience and your exposure. I think the path up until this point to lead to liver transplant training has been a little bit variable depending on institution. And certainly many intensivists and many cardiac anesthesiologists were grandfathered in to the liver transplant anesthesia forum because there was a, you know, a need for liver transplant directors and anesthesiologists in the OR and a paucity of individuals that could, 
could, that could perform that, that function. And many of the skills, skill set, and diagnostic capabilities that are um, required in liver transplant anesthesia are shared in cardiac anesthesia and ICU. And that's why there was sort of a natural communication within those three fields. But more and more, I think societies um, involved in the advancement of transplant anesthesia and the growth of transplant anesthesia have advocated for and endorsed specialized training in liver transplant anesthesia, particularly as numbers grow, the patient population becomes increasingly complex, and we push sort of the limits of who we're transplanting, what we're, what we're using to transplant patients, and, and what sort of alternate um, and additional um, therapeutic options there are for these patients. Um, so I would say to kind of answer that question, you know, things are evolving, but if you're really truly interested exploring programs at high volume liver transplant programs um, that offer and can guarantee exposure to a minimum number of 50 transplants a year with these additional sort of um, uh, electives that can support your overall comprehensive understanding of what liver transplant requires and entails in these patients is incredibly important. Great. All right. And then what do you think the future holds for liver transplant? Uh, What are we looking at? What are exciting things coming down the road? Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, we are expanding the recipient pool, we're expanding the donor pool. So we're pushing the limits and who we transplant sort of the severity of illness that we will accept for, um, for transplant candidacy. Um, we are doing that by, um, you know, again, being more aggressive with who we're transplanting now compared to who we would transplant 10 years ago in terms of, again, cardiovascular performance um, and comorbidities. And, um, and then doing things that we, you know, again, classically wouldn't do to, to avoid eliminating certain candidates like combined cab and liver transplants or combined valve liver transplants or combined heart lung transplants or combined, you know, Sorry, I said heart lung. I meant heart liver or combined lung liver transplants. Um, and then we're expanding the donor pool. So, you know, previously um, it m- might have been a contraindication to take a liver from an 85 year old patient, no longer the case. Um, you know, we will transplant organs that come from 82-year-olds. We will transplant organs from, you know, DCD donors that are of advanced age or more advanced age. I think with the um, intro of the perfusion pumps, we're pumping more organs and, um, and again, expanding the the, uh, donor pool, um, potentially putting more marginal grafts in sicker patients, but but being able to do so with ultimate recovery and good one-year and five-year survival. And then I think, again, sort of the evolution and development and practice of ERAS and fast track and early extubation and bypassing the ICU and facilitating more rapid recovery is going to be something that you see more globally in transplant programs. Uh, and then again, as part of sort of expanding the, the organ pool, I think you will see many institutions embrace and grow uh, the living donor program. So, so really trying to um, utilize that potential source of, of organ availability to, um, to increase numbers and, and address, you know, more patients on the wait list that otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't get a graft. 
Yeah, yeah, all really fantastic. And, you know, uh, with the news out of, I think, University of Maryland, right, of um, a heart that had been grown in a pig. Now, that patient ended up dying. But, you know, I got to think it's only a matter of time. Now, that time may be decades, but that until we're, we're growing viable organs in animals that um, that may be used in humans. So it may that may be way down the road, but still exciting to think about. It's a great. It's exciting. Um, well, Nicole, thank you so much. It's been fantastic. Let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have something you'd recommend that the audience check out? Oh, you know what? I, I like was thinking about this. And honestly, I'm just going to share with you my guilty pleasure. I love Anthony Bourdain, no reservation refunds. <laughs> so anytime I want to like vicariously live through someone, go to any like other country and experience that culture. And um, I'm sitting in the, you know, my living room. <laughs> my pjs wishing that i could do that those are the shows i watch and i love them so awesome fantastic um great and you know i'm way behind the times here um but i'm going to recommend if you haven't if anyone out there's possible that anyone hasn't yet found wordle um it is the the craze that i know everyone is already but it, but it's really a lot of fun and you know even my my 10 and nine year olds are very into it so you, you know kids can do it you can you know, see contests in the family. There's also, if you're, if you've conquered Wordle or you do that every day and you want more, there's Quartle, which is four <laughs> Wordles at one time. I think there's even further than that, though. I haven't gone beyond Quartle. And then um, there's also a version called Nerdle, which is a math version. So it's uh, instead of the letters of the alphabet, it's numbers and plus minus multiplication division. Great way to get your kids to practice a little math and another way to keep entertained. So Wordle, Quartle, and Nerdle are my recommendations for the day. Nicole, thank you so much. For coming this on was the show. a pleasure. Thank you so much. And, um, you know, good luck to everyone. And I hope you've learned something from this. And liver anesthesia is wonderful. So um, please come and join. <laughs> Thanks Thank so you much. Dr. Wolfall. Take care. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, acrac.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter. And we're at Akrak Podcast. And you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Dr. April Liu is our production assistant. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.